And I'd like to invite us to turn uh, to our texts for this morning, which is Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. Romans 8, 1 through 17, and if you're following along in the Bibles and the pews, that's on page 916. And we're continuing a, a sermon series here at Ivanrest that we actually started a, a number of weeks, uh, even months ago, on the, the Holy Spirit. I think I've said this already before. This is actually a, a sermon series that came from one of you. Uh, that's because a while back, this was probably a year or so ago, I was talking with one of you and um, asked the question, why is it that we don't really talk about the Holy Spirit uh, in the CRC or in the Reformed tradition as a whole? And uh, this person said, you know, we talk a lot about God the Father, we talk a lot about Jesus Christ the Son, but we don't really talk that much about the Holy Spirit. We should have a sermon on the Holy Spirit at some point. And I thought, that's a good idea. And then me being me, I took that idea and instead of just one sermon on the Holy Spirit, I decided, let's do 10. Uh, so that's what we're doing uh, right now and we're uh, really in the midst of this series. And for the last couple of weeks, we've actually been looking at some of the ways that the Apostles' Creed talks about the Holy Spirit and that's what we're gonna continue uh, this morning. So our text comes to us from Romans 8, verses 1 through 17. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to, their, according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, you, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And it is by him that we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering in order that we might also share in his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, one of my least favorite things in life, and I understand that this is pretty much the epitome of a first world problem, is when I'm working on my computer, you know, answering email or writing a sermon or something like that, and I get the notification, updates available. Click to install and restart. And that bugs me. Now I'll admit, I have no good reason for why that bugs me, but it does. And my irritation pretty much comes down to inconvenience. Ah, I think, an update? That'll take like a whole five minutes. And yet even though those updates bug me, I also understand why they're necessary. And see, just like my body needs sleep, exercise, and nutrition to keep functioning the way that it's supposed to, I understand that my computer needs those updates to keep running, to keep functioning the way it's supposed to as well. In fact, ironically, it's those very same updates that interrupt my work and irritate me so much that allow my computer to do the very things that I need it to do in order to do my work. And so even though I don't like them and they bug me, I understand why those updates are necessary and why I need to make time for them. Plus, in the grand scheme of things, they don't really take that long anyway. Every once in a while, though, they do. Every once in a while, they do take a while. And that's because every once in a while, my computer needs not just an update, but a whole upgrade. And those take a while longer. My computer needs a new OS, it's called, a new operating system, and so every couple of years, the company who made the computer that I own, Apple, releases a new operating system. The old is gone, the new is here, and so I have to set aside time for my computer to download, install, and upgrade to that new system. It normally takes about an hour or two, and when it's done, the result is stunning, because my computer looks different, it works different, it functions sometimes in an entirely new way, which also means then that I have to relearn how to do everything on it, but that's besides the point. Well, truth be told, the Apostle Paul is actually talking about something similar here in our passage for this morning. That's because here in Romans 8, he says that we, human beings, like a computer, have been given an upgrade, a new system, a new OS. You see, Paul says we used to run function and operate on an old version of human nature. He calls it the flesh, and we'll talk in a little bit more about what that means. But now, Paul says, God has released an upgrade, a new OS, and far from just tweaking a thing or two here or there, it's an entirely new system. And if we're willing to take the time to install it, Paul says, it will change and transform us to such an extent that we will function and operate as people in an entirely new way. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about that new system of human functioning that Paul says is available to us. How it is that we download or install it, if you will, and then what difference it makes in our lives too. 
Before we get uh, too far into all that, though, let's kind of orient ourselves as to where we are in this series. Um, After all, like I said, we're in the midst of a sermon series on the Holy Spirit right now. And so as part of that, we've actually been looking at the Apostles' Creed and its last few lines where it describes the work or effects that the Holy Spirit has on us and in the world and in the church. You see, at the end of the Creed, after detailing what we believe first about God the Father and then second about Jesus Christ the Son, the Creed says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, we said this a few weeks ago, right? But those last five lines there, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting, they each describe uh, or summarize the kind of work that the Holy Spirit does. And so that's why we've been looking at these lines sort of one at a time the last couple of weeks to get a sense of the kind of work that the Holy Spirit does in his church, in us, and in the broader world. Today, then, we're focusing on that third line, the forgiveness of sins. And that's why we're here in Romans chapter 8 this morning. Because more than anything else, that's what this chapter is really about. It's the Apostle Paul talking about the implications, the consequences, the results, the things that result from our forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And like we just said, one of those things one of the things that results from our forgiveness in Christ is that we've been given that new OS, that new operating system, that new way of living and moving and having our being as human beings. Now again, that's what Paul is talking about here in this chapter. That's really what he's been talking about since the start of chapter seven, the chapter just before this too. You see, in chapter seven, Paul sketches out in detail what it's like for human beings to live according to the old sinful nature, our old OS, our old way of operating, the flesh, he calls it. The word for that in the original Greek is sarx, and that's an important word for Paul. Pretty much throughout his letters, any time that Paul wants to talk about our sin as human beings and the effect that it has in our lives, that's the word he uses, sarks, the flesh. It's kind of a catch-all word for Paul and his theology to describe our sinful nature and what it does to us. For instance, just listen to how Paul describes the flesh, our sinful nature, in verses 14 through 23 of chapter 7. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my, and then this is that word in Greek, sarx, the flesh, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, Evil is right there with me. 
For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. That's basically a summary of Paul's understanding of, of the flesh, of Sark's right there. It's the sinful nature, the sinful mode, the sinful tendency that we all have as human beings to, despite the fact that we know what's good, and maybe even despite the desire to do that good, we continue to do the opposite. You ever feel that way? Like you know the good things that you want to do, but try though you might, you just can't do them. I certainly feel that way from time to time. Uh, For instance, I really appreciate what Lois just said in the prayer about parents uh, getting all the wisdom and patience that they need. Because pretty much every morning that I wake up, uh, I have this vision of the kind of father I want to be. This version of Brandon is kind, gracious, and patient as a parent. Uh, He's a good listener who gives Levi and Titus the time and attention that they need to say the things that they need to say. He appreciates and loves them and they know it from how he treats them. He's a warm presence with a soft touch who even when he needs to correct his children does so with gentleness, care, and humility so that by watching his example, his kids can grow up into the Christ-like disciples of Jesus that he himself is. Every morning I wake up and I think, that's the kind of dad I wanna be. And I hop out of bed, I clap my hands together, and I say, let's get to it. And then a mere 12 and a half minutes later, when one of the kids is melting down because the dog is eating their milk and cereal off the floor of the kitchen, because that same kid threw their milk and cereal onto the floor of the kitchen, because that same kid who asked for that milk and cereal just moments before has now thrown a temper tantrum after they suddenly realize they don't want that milk and cereal anymore. When all of that is happening 12 and a half minutes later, I lose my ever-loving mind. (laughs) And I don't know where patient parent Brandon has gone at this point, but he is not in the kitchen anymore. And my kids are left with some other version of me. My friends, that's our flesh. That's our sinful nature. As Paul puts it, the good I want to do, I can't do, but the evil I don't want to do, this I keep doing. It's our fallen, corrupted, broken down, sinful operating system that we just can't seem to escape. As Paul himself bemoans at the end of chapter seven, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body, this flesh, this sarks that is subject to death? Who will deliver us? Well, it turns out Paul gives the answer in the very next verse. In Romans 7, 25, he says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then skipping a verse, he says again at the start of this chapter, chapter eight, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's what this entire chapter, Romans eight, is all about. It's a summary of our theme for this morning, the forgiveness of sins. 
It's about how in Christ we've been forgiven, we've been redeemed, we've been made righteous and given that new operating system, set free from the flesh and made new. Let's just walk through the first few verses here. You'll get a a picture, a sense of this. First, in verse one, Paul says that there is now no condemnation, which means no guilt, no iniquity, no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Verse two, because Christ, in Christ we have been set free from the law of sin and death. And how has that happened? How does that work? Verse three, Christ came in human flesh to be a sin offering on our behalf basically to do what we couldn't do. And so says verse four, because of his sacrifice, the requirements of God's law have been met in him. And so as a result, we as human beings who couldn't keep God's law are now free from judgment, free from prosecution, free from condemnation for our sins because Jesus Christ has won that freedom on our behalf for us. No wonder this is such a favorite chapter for Christians, right? I mean, it's like the entire gospel in a nutshell. But, and this is an important but, there is a gulf of difference between knowing all of that and actually living it out. And that's the second thing that Paul talks about in this passage. Because he doesn't just want us to know that our sins are forgiven, you know, up here. Instead, he wants us to live like we're forgiven too. Because as Paul well understands, that's a gap that we can fall into as Christians sometimes, right? Knowing that we're forgiven, but not necessarily living in a way that demonstrates it. A number of years ago, before we had kids who would sometimes throw their milk and cereal on the floor, uh, when we were still able to take trips like this, Sarah and I went on a vacation to London, England, uh, for, for a whole week. And to get around the city and see the different sights and sounds that we wanted to see, we used the subway a lot, the tube, as they call it there. And if you've ever been to London, then you know this, but when you board the tube, the train, the subway, there are signs and reminders all over the place, including even a voice recording that will talk to you when the train comes up, telling you to mind the the gap. They're telling you to remember that there is a gap between the platform and the train so that when you step from the platform to the train, you don't trip, you don't stumble, you don't get your foot stuck or something worse. Mind the gap. Well, in the same way as Christians, we need to mind the gap too. The only difference is that rather than minding the gap between a platform and a train, we need to mind the gap between what we just talked about. The forgiveness that we've received and knowing about it and living it out. Honestly, this is something I think about a lot in my own life. This is a question I ask myself. Am I minding the gap? Am I someone who doesn't just believe, someone who doesn't just confess, someone who doesn't just, in my case, preach and teach about the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, but actually live it out? Am I someone who doesn't just know up here that I'm forgiven, but I live that forgiveness out in an everyday, daily sort of way? Because I'll be honest with you, Forgiven people, truly forgiven people, live different. 
They're the sort of gracious, kind, merciful, humble, understanding, generous, and good people I want to be. And why? because they've received that forgiveness in Jesus Christ. They've internalized it and they're living off of it, breathing it in and breathing it back out the way the rest of us live off of and breathe in and out air. This, by the way, I think is why Jesus' parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18 is such a disappointing story. Jesus tells a story in that chapter about a king who wanted to settle his accounts. And so Jesus says, as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. And at this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. And he grabbed him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe me. And his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay it back. Notice how it's the exact same plea, but a different response because he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. I think the reason that story is so disappointing is because that servant who is forgiven that debt ought to know better, right? I mean, he's just been forgiven an insurmountable debt, something he could never pay back. 10,000 bags of gold in that time and culture was more than most people could have hoped to have made in their entire lifetime. And yet, what does he do? Immediately after being forgiven a debt like that, he goes and finds someone who owes him a couple hundred bucks, chokes him out and throws him in prison. He's been forgiven an enormous amount but he's not living like it. He's not remembering it. He's not minding the gap. The question for us is, are we? You know, there's a quote by theologian Karl Barth that haunts me. Uh, Speaking as part of a BBC radio address a number of years ago, Barth supposedly said, speaking to us, his fellow Christians, why are you not saying what you ought to say and saying it with power and eloquence? Why don't you force us to pay attention to you? We should like to see you less timid, more consistent, bolder. We often have the impression that you are afraid. Of what, really? And you spread so little light and joy around you. Now, to be fair, in the context of that quote, Bart was was talking, I think, mostly about evangelism and the need for Christians to be bolder and more consistent in sharing our faith. But it's that last line that haunts me. You spread so little light and joy around you. My friends, are we living not just like people who know we're forgiven, but people who actually embody it? Are we people of grace, people of mercy, people of peace, people of goodness, people of gentleness? In other words, people of all the sorts of qualities that come from being forgiven by Jesus Christ. Are we people who spread the light and joy of that forgiveness around us? 
In short, are we people for whom it is evident that we believe, really believe, to the core of our being that we've been forgiven, that we've been saved? Because as Paul makes clear here in this chapter, we have been. We have been forgiven. We have been saved. That old version of ourselves has been put to death and we now no longer have any business living according to it. Instead, there's a new version, a new system, a new way of life and operating that is available to us and that is what we are called to live into now. And here's where we get to the Holy Spirit this morning. Because it turns out that that new version, that new system, that new way of operating as human beings, the installation, if you will, of Jesus' forgiveness in our lives, it's all a work of the Holy Spirit. As Paul says in verse four here, we do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He goes on, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Now there's a lot to unpack there and to be quite honest with you, we don't have time for all of it this morning. So instead, for our purposes today, I just wanna highlight a couple brief points. First, Paul assures us that we have the Holy Spirit as believers in Jesus Christ. He says, if a number of times here, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you, if Christ is in you, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, but he's not calling into question whether or not we have the Holy Spirit. He's not saying if as in maybe or if you do. Instead, he's using that word if more in the sense of since or because since you have the Holy Spirit, because you have the Holy Spirit, you do have the Holy Spirit, Paul is telling us, so live like it. Live out your forgiveness, live out your salvation, live out your renewed kind of life. That's what Paul is calling us to here. As people who have the Holy Spirit, Paul is calling us to a different kind of life. But it's not actually we who do it. That's the second thing Paul is telling us here. It's not we who just, through effort, work our way into this kind of life. Rather, Paul says, it's by Christ and his spirit. That's how we're empowered 
to live this kind of life. He has put to death the flesh, Paul says, and now the spirit of God is living in you, transforming you, working his way through you from the inside out to make the forgiveness of your sins, the transformation of your body, every nook and cranny of who you are actually, different, new, redeemed. And that brings us to the third thing Paul says here, which is that because of the Spirit, we can finally live the way God created us to live in the beginning. You see, we, I think we forget this sometimes. We weren't created to live this way. Struggling with the flesh, the sinful nature, this old, outdated, fallen version of ourselves. Rather, in the beginning, when God made us, he made us good. We were made in his image according to his will. Because of our sin, that's no longer the way we work. But my friends, that's the way God wants us to work again. He wants to renew, wants to recreate, wants to redeem us so that we can be the way he created us to be in the beginning. And yet in his grace, he also knows that we can't do that on our own. And so that's why he gives us his spirit. Like a computer upgrade, fixing the bugs, fixing the viruses, and rebooting the whole system, that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. He renews, fixes, and recreates us in a whole new way. And sure, we're still gonna sin from time to time. I don't wanna downplay that. Um, There's still gonna be times where I'm gonna lose my ever-loving mind with my kids. But in the spirit of Jesus Christ, that's no longer the overarching orientation of our lives. We are not, as Paul puts it, captives or slaves to our sin anymore. Instead, we have been set free by Christ. We've been renewed and transformed by his spirit. We've had our sins forgiven. And because of that, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can live more like it every single day. We call that the gospel. And it's the good news of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, you know us better than we even know ourselves. You know that We want to do the good that we know we're supposed to do. We want to live the way you've called us to live. And you also, even more than us, know the depths of our sin and the ways it drags us back down so that we can't live that way, so that we continue to mess up in all the ways we've sworn a thousand times that we would never do again, again. But God, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the forgiveness that he made possible on the cross. And thank you for your Holy Spirit who you have sent to dwell within us, to renew and transform us, all of us, from the inside out, to look more like who you've created us to be. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.